witty, thought-provoking, and uplifting Southern Soul Livestream is a program that you'll invite your friends over to watch every week, where you'll learn about interesting guests and get to share in their fascinating experiences. Tune in each Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern to connect with guests from across the generations and to laugh with our eclectic hosts who are as charming as they are talented. This is your boy, Calvin. We have an awesome announcement for you. Get ready to elevate your brand to the next level. We are launching Soul Surge Media. But check this out. We're just not another agency. We're your growth partners. You ever have that experience where you get out there, you spend money on your endeavor. The person just didn't do it right. Here at Soul Surge, we're building a full service agency of creators you can trust. People who do what they love and love what they do, and they're here to help you. So get ready to elevate your brand from captivating content, establishing your LLC, and your brand identity to building your community through live streaming, podcasting, establishing you as a paid speaker. We are a full service agency. So check us out at soulsurgemedia.com. That's soul surgemedia.com but that's not all we are starting every third saturdays what we're calling side gig saturdays still not sure it's okay come check us out at sidegigsaturdays.com what's up people what's up i have the privilege today to sit down with my brother namesake calvin lawrence and I have been admiring this brother from afar for a while now since I first heard about the awesome book that he's written on AI. Not just AI, but what he's writing about is the interesting, unique perspective for people of color. And the title of the book has the phrase hidden in white sight. Welcome, my brother, Calvin Lawrence. How you doing, man? Thank you, Calvin. My name's say Appreciate it. Thank you for, for inviting me. Yes, man. I remember, I know you've been on the trails getting that book out there and many people like Calvin, you got to catch up with Calvin. You got to catch up with Lawrence. And I love it. I love it that we finally caught up. Tell me this. We would love for you to just introduce yourself and let us know something about yourself. We call it the origin story. How did you first get in, involved in AI and ethics? Tell us about your origin story, where you grew up and how you first got involved in AI. Well, I tell you, I'm a country boy. Family is from a uh, combination of Old South and New Jersey, but my mom actually, I moved back down South. So I grew up uh, right outside of Athens, Georgia. And so really AI for me has been really about the history of the black person, right? I, I, I use in my book, I talk about how AI empowers and deepens systemic racism. So the idea of it, going back to your question, really, uh, I think all of us as black people, we deal with the consequences of AI every day. So that has, I've never been lost upon that. The many years that I've been designing and developing solutions uh, around AI, I've always in the back of my mind considered how that those outcomes and those predictor and recommendation variables impact people of color. My background is one of poverty, to be quite honest. I grew up in government housing. I um, 
first person in my family to go to college, probably not unlike many folk uh, uh, who was around me. It was not a big thing. College was never something that I, I really considered uh, growing up. I've always been uh, scholastically gifted, if you will. I always like to say, one of my teachers told me once that, Calvin, you can make an A whenever you feel like it. I rarely felt like it, but I knew that I had the aptitude to do it, right? That wasn't something that I was more concerned about really debating, proving a point, proving someone wrong, and sports. So it's funny, I got in college by just by proving someone wrong. Like one of my white teachers told me that I would never go to college. I would never amount to much. And that was a awakening call for me and motivated me. I ended up going to college getting it pretty easily, getting accepted in it. And once I got into college, then it just, I, I awakened, if you will. I became woke in a sense where I understood the system and I was really positioned or at least opposed to, to tackle it. And that's really been my life at IBM. I started with AI in grad school which was the middle 90s. So that just dates myself in regards to how long I've been around AI. My, my grad school thesis was in AI and how AI impact uh, computer services. So that was the whole concept of how AI is being used in memory management and those components. So I left that and took a job with NASA doing AI. I did that for a couple of years to pay off my grad school sponsorships that they gave me. They actually paid for my grad school. And then shortly after that, I, I started working with IBM. So I've always been around programming, development, research. So that's been my background. I most recently, the last 10 years or so, I've been working with clients in particular out in the field, building these applications from video analytics facial recognition systems to, to really every type of system that you might imagine. So when people talk about AI and talk about some of these weird things or interesting, some of them being biased, things that happens, I actually have my hands on a lot of that, know exactly how those systems were built. I'm excited, again, excited to, to, to be here with you, just to hear you poke at me and, to, and, and ask me some serious questions about these, this code and how it's worked, how it works. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for that backdrop. And I love it. Having spent my entire career in what I call high technology, I still, like many people, didn't realize that AI has been around for a while. As you can imagine, recently AI is in top in the industry. People are doomsday. They're predicting all kinds of things. But what you said, many people may not realize you were working in AI in grad school. Any idea why people may not have realized that AI has been around that long? In addition, what do you think is really leading to all of the excitement that we've seen around AI in the last four to five years? I think it's businesses. It's, it's about capitalism, right? Early on, even when I was doing it in the late 90s and early 2000s, people have, had not found businesses, had not found a way to monetize it. AI basically creates uh, massive efficiencies through automation, right? So it helps clients do all things faster and cheaper, and it helps them do things that they haven't considered doing before. So it's an innovative type of concept, if you will, 
that will help, uh, that allows them to augment what they consider to be human activity, right? So think of any job or any task that a human might do, then it is prime for whomever is actually sponsoring that to use AI to either cut people or to augment them to help them do things that they possibly could not do in their with their human hands. So to your question, I, I believe that just the money the billions of dollars that's associated with it today is different than what it was. Back when I was doing it, it was really something that I wouldn't even, I, I was pretty proud of it, but it wasn't something that I wanted on my resume because he was considered a geek or a robotic kind of sci-fi fictionary person. I lended myself to more like Java and C++ and those real cool and even those fourth generational high level computer programming environments. So just recently, over the last four or five years, it happens, but it didn't really start there, right? I said earlier, I think I might have talked to you offline where, you know, about five years ago, I was CTO for IBM, I was CTO for Smarter Cities. And we had a product called facial recognition or intelligent video analytics, which was all AI. So when you think about just the facial recognition, the video analytic component of what we now call AI, we were doing that five years ago, right? We were working with police. We were working with fire departments. We were working with state and local governments and healthcare providers and retail providers using video analytics to help basically automate processes and automate systems. So that technology has been around for a long, really a long time. It's just that now people are realizing just how financially uh, lucrative it could be to build these type systems where, in my mind, there lies the problem. Like, there lies the problem, the ubiquitousness of these applications. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. I remember doing a little robotics and engineering school, and I remember exactly what you described. It wasn't the coolest thing. And it's like a few people who got those robotic jobs, you, you didn't hear about them much often. But I like the way you describe it. There was other technologies such as Java and other things. But it's really cool to see that you've been doing it for a while. Tell me this. In your book, Hidden in White Sight, you discuss how AI can empower and even deepen systematic racism. Can you elaborate on how, with some examples of how this can happen in the real world? Yeah, absolutely, man. When you really think about what how AI is defined, right? It, it was meant to mimic human behavior. So the whole concept behind that is it, it has a learned capability. So you feed it with lots of data and you train it on some action or some task that you want it to do. Right. You can imagine, take something really simple, right? I use this example a lot and then I'll give you some examples. Imagine you yourself driving home from work and you drive the same way every day and you notice that the traffic, you know, follows up in a given area. So you might do that three or four times and then afterwards you learn that it's best not to go this direction. So you'll go in another direction. So you learn that the traffic uh, will bottle up in a certain area. So your human mind would cause you to go and make an alternative or go an alternative route. AI works the same way. Right? AI will, will learn behavior and learn patterns. And when something goes wrong, it'll remember the fault. 
and remember the fact that traffic is always bottling up. And the very next time you do it, then it'll go and give you a different answer based upon what the the patterns that it determines. So if you look at that and you think about it, you're like, I could be here all day giving you examples from everything from recruiting apps, right? So an app that when you really think about just the systemic racism on how it, how difficult it is to say, get into a college, right? So we're using AI now, most school systems, especially higher level colleges, predominantly white institutes are using AI to determine who gets into the school system. As you might imagine, the data that we feed that algorithm can be biased if it's based upon historical references, right? So if you go to a one school and there are already historical biases, and we know that exists, right? I don't think people debate the fact that biases exist on everything from educational enrollment exams to uh, exams, even exams within a, within a classroom. Right. We know things like the SAT, the ACT, traditionally in our black community, we've known that those, those tests can be quite biased to us. Right. So that data gets pulled into an AI algorithms. So you start running into issues around things like hiring and recruitment, acceptance. So all of that category of applications, if you will, uh, is prone to be biased. It's not intentional. So I say plan, meaning that we have to be intentional about making sure that the data that's being fed into some of these systems are representative of the environment, right? And, and not misidentifiable to the results, right? So it's if you know who you want to be enrolled in this class in a recruiting app or an educational app, then the AI will give you exactly what wow. you expect it to give you, right? So this is one example, but if you look at AI in healthcare, we talk about, I said in one of my LinkedIn posts, right? Basic things like the American Heart Association, they'll get mad at me for saying this, but I don't think they'll argue the point, right? For algorithms that will predict who should be admitted into a hospital based upon some serious illness. Right. When the, within the data, within those predictive variables, they actually add three points to non-blacks. So if you are non-black in this algorithm that will determine whether or not if you go into the hospital because you say you're having heart failure, the algorithm that tells the doctor, that tells the staff whether or not this is serious enough, not just based upon your history, what's actually happening with you right there in the hospital, but there's an algorithm that says, based upon these type system symptoms and this individual profile, this person is less likely to be having a medical emergency. So let's send them home. So wow. how it plays out is that we go into a healthcare provider and they give us their data. That algorithm, if you will, or that predictor variable is already in play. They already they give us that and we like build that within our code. So imagine how, imagine the case where, you know, if there's a score of 20 that says, if you reach those 20 and you have these type of symptoms and you come to the hospital, you're automatically getting admitted. The white, the non-black patient automatically 
gets that at 20 because we added three points automatically. Mm, wow. Least sole example of biases in AI. Now, does that mean that somebody or a programmer has been biased in the design? Not at all. Not in this case, right? Because we're, when we go into these environments, they give us what they consider to be their methodology or the metrics for determining something. And we basically, as AI designers and programmers and data scientists, take that data uh, and basically, and take that methodology, if you will, embedded it within our code and it, the results are there. So the question would be, right, and it's a proven fact that Blacks and Hispanics, when we go to the emergency room, we're less likely to be admitted than our white counterparts. That's not by accident, right? So we could have the same exact symptoms, the same exact issues, but the algorithm is telling you one thing versus another. Well, you know. Going back, there are some other examples, but I'll, I'll jump around here and we, we can have a discussion because that really was the motivator for me. Yeah. When it, oh, oh. I haven't said this on publicly yet, but there was an epiphany because I've been building some, one would ask, hey, Calvin, you've been building these systems for many years. What makes you want to write a book today? Some of these things I knew already. But there's reasons why one would not speak up or could not speak up because we don't really, it's not a whole lot of us there. So our voices are not being amplified and not being heard. But for me personally, I had a medical issue myself and heart issue. And I went to the hospital and folk who know me know that I am the, I'm the mall of health, right? I eat right. I work out the last 15, 20 years. I probably have missed maybe 10 days from going to the gym and working out in the last 20 years. So I was the model of health from a cardio perspective to a weightlifting perspective. And I went to the doctor a lot. I always got, went to the doctor and got checked out. And each time I would go, I would just remember my doctor would always say, Calvin, you look great. Even though some of your symptoms are high, like your cholesterol is high and some of these others, but it's normal for a black athlete. Wow. These high type environments. So he was practicing race-based medicine, obviously, right? That was his mindset. And the algorithms that he used supported that, right? Because we built those types of algorithms and we know that mindset always seeps into the algorithm because we actually interview doctors to get the data that we need to, to turn that data into information to feed and train the apps. So for me, you're out by myself where the algorithm is saying that I have a less than 0.001% of having any type of heart issue, but yet and still here I am having one, right? So I start looking back and say, wow, like this after querying my doctor and then realizing this self-reflection, like, Calvin, you actually worked on some algorithms for this particular hospital. Wow. So it immediately, it hit me. I said, hey, now is the time. Now is the time to, to, so I started writing the beginning of the book at that point. But I, even then I put it out for about a year or so. And, but it was just an opportunity for me to do self-reflection and that that point when I start seeing myself as the victim and seeing myself as on the other end of some of these bias applications, it was pretty obvious for me 
regardless of what others would say, regardless of the risk of losing my job or being blackballed or isolated in the industry, that was no longer a consideration of mine. Wow. That, people, is a awesome story and such a strong testimony. I tell you what, I spent over the last two decades in high technology. When I say high technology, I'm like Fortune Top 10, right? And what I just heard Calvin Lawrence say is that it is about the history of the data that's given to the programmers. And as the programmers do, their job is to create the system that they've been hired to do. But they're given the ingredient. It's like when you're cooking, right? You cook in and they say, what you want to cook? And it says, make me this cake like this. And they say, I'm going to go to the store. No, you don't have to go to the store. We're going to give you the data. We're going to give you the ingredients. And the chef, in this case, the programmer say, okay, I'll cook it. But what Lawrence also said is that this data is based on historic behavior like SAT scores. So what that means is if the AI can learn good behavior, it can also mimic bad behavior. So we're taking bad behavior, bad data, giving it to programmers, these chefs, and they're coding it as they've been told to do, but it's biased from day one. Thank you for sharing that. And it really has opened my eyes because even though I've spent time in high technology, I never understood the nuance that you just described. Tell me this. You're obviously an author and an expert in this field. What advice do you have for individuals who may be passionate about promoting what I would call responsible AI in addressing some of these ethical implications, implications that you have seen and decided to speak up about? Yeah, I, I think for us as people of color in particular, and when I wrote the book, I wrote the book. I didn't write the book for technologists like you and I, Calvin. I actually wrote the book for my mom and my sister. I wrote it for the normal, everyday person, which really made it quite challenging, to be quite honest. It would have been much easier for me to write the book they wanted me to write. When they came to me to write a book, they wanted me to write a book on AI. So it wasn't going to be biased. Yeah, I'll, I'll get to answer your question in a second, but I think this is tangential to this dialogue or this narrative. When they came to me to write a book, they came to me as an IBM AI designer, and they wanted me to write a book on AI, and I refused to write the book. I said, I won't write a book on AI. There's lots of books already out on AI, but I will write a book on responsible use of AI because I see it as the same thing. Without responsible use of AI, then what's the purpose of having any AI application if it's not responsibly built? So I see these two conversations as not diametrical or, or conflicting thoughts, but one of the same. I love the example that you used. Again, I'll answer your question in a second about the cake, because I start the book off talking about explaining AI from the perspective or an AI algorithm from a perspective of my grandmama's cake. My grandma was a great baker. And everybody knew it. she could bake a caramel cake to the point where it was mouth dropping and everybody wanted to know what she had in it. 
And I, so my mom and my aunts and everybody always trying to duplicate her cake, but it never was the same, right? So you think about the concept of baking a cake, right? It's a very orchestrated process. You know exactly what needs to be in there. My grandma would bake the cake. She knew she needed eggs. She knew she needed, she knew she needed flour. She needed all of those ingredients. But there were one ingredient that she would never share with anybody. And it made her cake. It's the same concept when we think about algorithms. There's an ingredient set up of ingredients. There's a set of structured programs that goes into an algorithm. And it's the data. So think of the ingredients in the cake as the data that we add into the cake bowl. It's the same concept. Pick your favorite algorithm or your favorite algorithm application, whether it's policing or healthcare or Uber or whatever it is, there's some ingredients that go into it. The training data is some is the ingredient. So if someone leaves out a core or key piece of data, then the outcome will be different. Just if my grandmama left out eggs, the case would not be the same. We call that, and technology has a black box. So when people think about AI, they say it's the black box, meaning that what goes into the black box, nobody knows. And that's why legally you haven't been able to sue, you haven't been able to hold folk responsible because it's the black box. So it's like the doorknob. When you turn the doorknob, the door opens, but inside of the doorknob, right, you don't know exactly what's happening in the doorknob. And the doorknob maker is not necessarily telling you what's inside of the doorknob. But if there's something there's a screw missing or there's something inside of the doorknob, then the doorknob knob will be dysfunctional. It won't work. And that's what we're dealing with here in this case. So getting back to your question, your question, what advice? The advice comes in three, four different perspectives. In the book, I talk about the first seven chapters of the book was written for people that look like you and I. And many of them are not educated. My mom is not educated. She's reading the book was for her, be able to expose and to make her aware of certain things. Like when she goes to the doctor or when she goes to apply for a loan, uh, I can give you a case after exam, case after case where these applications are proven to be biased against people, normal, everyday, ordinary people of color. Not educated, not people who are technologists like you and I, but just regular everyday people of color. For me, the first piece of advice is one of awareness. It's an awakening. That's why it's called hidden, meaning that you need to know. If an algorithm tells you that you didn't get approved for a loan and you know that your credit score is higher now, you know that your debt income ratio is higher now or equitable enough, you know that you had a job long enough, and then they tell you no, that means that something inside the black box didn't go right in your favor. As an example would be, hold yourself into your place. An example would be, banks are all about risk, right? So let's just say you have a brother who just got out of jail, and he comes to live with you. It happens all the time in our community, right? We are very forgiving. 
he comes and lives with you. To the bank and to AI, that's a piece of interesting, credible data that will increase or lower your risk score. So a bank is all about not loaning money to people who might not pay it back or might go into default. So a banker might say, hey, you got felonies. You got people with felonies that live with you ain't going to increase your risk score. Matter of fact, I might not give you that loan. Is that fair? It breaks all types of rules and all types of laws. But who knows? Because inside of that doorknob, inside of that case, is a black box. How do you prove it? We call in the industry, we, we have two terms for it. One is disparate impact. That means somebody has done something to you accidentally, meaning that some accidentally happens, like the AI made some biased decision, but the owners of it did not know it was happening. Typically, the court in law would say most of these cases fall in that environment. But then there's something else called disparate treatment. That means that the banker actually knew what he was doing. He knew when he hired me to build this app and he gave me that information that he was trying his best not to allow certain segments of our population to get loans. That's what I mean by systemic racism. That's what I mean by the institutions that we have and that we live under is being, if you will, scaled or racism around that is being scaled by these black boxes and these applications. These are real life situations. These are real life applications that are happening. You're not futuristic. They're not scientific. These are applications that we, that we see today. You know, everything from appraisals, being able to use algorithms to determine whether or not a, uh, the appraisal rate against your house, right? So in the past, we would have a human appraiser. And wow. typically, the human appraiser looks at not houses in your neighborhood, other types of comps. They would call them, and they come up with what the value would be. When AI could use all types of bias pictures and data points. We again in the industry, we call that big data. And data points can come from all types of ways where a human would struggle to determine how to rationalize more than four or five. Imports. Mm -hmm. A computer can do thousands and thousands of parameters to come up with a score. And in the book, I just give examples after examples. But, but again, to your point, initially, the advice goes to just people who look like you and I, awareness. Then secondly, to designers and developers like myself, there's another set of advice that goes to us to make us empathetic and sensitive to the fact that even some of these systems that we're building, we're not aware and we don't even know. I, like I said, I haven't met a racist developer per se, but nevertheless, <laughs> the code hurts as just as much as whether you knew about it or you did not know about it. So there's a um, set of advice that goes to designers. Then there's a set of advice that goes to corporate leaders who sponsor these types of apps who are oftentimes wrestling with the concept of profit versus social responsibility and profit always wins whenever that is the case. So a set of advice that goes to them, then ultimately there is a set of advice that goes to the government agencies who, who's tasked with protecting us from these racially 
motivated applications. And sometimes these money thirsting and hunger corporate leaders who really are all about how much money they can make, right? Our government is supposed to protect us from that. And that's why you see and hear about this push for Bill of Rights and legislation, not just thoughts and Bill of Rights, but, but actual legislation that makes these folks accountable. So there's lots of normative guidance and best practices and advice for really all who are involved in this space. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And you really hit me to how broad this is. And I feel like geeking out, but I'm going to stay on agenda. But what I hear you saying, you have advice for people who go to the doctors. I have a lot of friends who are in the medical industry. And I did this show, Soul Thursdays, we got started because we were watching disparities in the community. No matter if you were a small business owner, we did a show on the disparity of maternal mortality rates for black women. And we begin to talk about some of the biases that the nurses would have, whether or not they were determined to give a mother pain medicine. They would say, oh, she's of color. She's Hispanic. She's black. Maybe I will not give her pain medicine. But what I'm hearing you saying is this systematic racism in AI is like racism on steroids. It's automated. What I also hear you saying, and I hadn't seen how far it reaches, what you're saying, it's in the banking. It's all of these automatic scores and decisions that are happening everywhere. Loans, houses, medicine, small business considerations. It's so much everywhere. And I'm so glad that you have displayed what we call a seat at the table. You know, that seat at the table where you get a chance to see what's going on and talk about it. You have now given me a whole new meaning for seat at the table. Tell me this. I like how you describe in all honesty. You say, I'm going to write this book. But there's repercussions. There could be blackball. There could be other things. There can be people who don't want this information to be out there. And I'm glad you persisted. I'm glad you persisted because now we have information that technology organizations, that business leaders, and like you said, developers and people who go to the doctor can begin to understand. What would you consider the ultimate call to action for your book, the businesses and individuals out there? Is it just a good old fashioned diversity inclusion or do you feel we need to really do AI differently? Hmm. That's a really good question. It's something that I've thought about, but I really haven't got my arms around really the answer because everything is quite dynamic. Lots of things are changing. But at the net, I do believe that diversity and inclusion is important because what we do know is that having certain people at the table or involved in the process gives an opportunity to have a talk, to have a bigger or broader perspective on things, right? So diversity, I, I, I do believe that's an issue that won't ever change, right? Which I think that will help, but I don't see that helping, right? Because in order to fix that problem, corporate leaders would have to say, I'm going to hire more black people. I'm going to hire more people of color. I'm going to hire more STEM developers. I'm going to hire more black project managers. I'm going to hire more black facilitators. I'm going to hire more black engineering. Uh, and engineering students or candidates, I don't see that happening. So with that said, and, and, and minus that happening, I think that 
really the goal here is to bring it to the attention of the masses, to appeal upon the consciousness of our society. And we've had to do that from the beginning, right? That's why I constantly, within the book, I, I actually go off and, and continue talking about systemic racism. I talk about our Bill of Rights. I talk about, in the book, I, again, in the book, I talk about the concept of, we think about our own Bill of Rights. Think about how imperfect it was. What did it take to get the 13th, the 14th, and the 15th Amendment done? How many years did it go by that we had to go by and we had this constitution, but it wasn't perfect? So we, and how did we get that? So we had to march, we had to talk, we had to argue, we had to, to have folks like myself and you and others to stand up and say, you know what, I understand what's at stake here, right? Think about myself as a prime example, right? I said earlier, first person in my college, in my family to go to college. I've had more things than, probably have made more money than 90% of my family put together. So to risk that is a big thing, but I think it, it calls for that. It calls for that. It calls for folk like you and I and your listeners and your audience to say, hey, you know what? Whenever this happens to me or someone else, I'm going to speak up. Once we do that, then we can, the legislation, with a voice comes legislation. Without voice, without people, I don't think we ever get the legislation that we need to move. And in this case, we certainly need legislation because there's some things that we know. We know that racism exists within our environment. We know that systemic racism exists in our environment. Racism is typically some, is really defined as somebody saying that someone intentionally does something to you, right? That disenfranchises you intentional. Systemic racism says that it can be intentional or unintentional that the institutions that is that is the founding institutions are biased or prone to being biased. And that's what we see with AI, right? And that's because AI mimics human behavior. So if we assume that it's systemic race racism and institutional racism exists, then you also must admit or agree that racism happens or Systemic racism happens in AI because nobody argues the fact that AI mimics human behavior. So I ask the question, what is that behavior? What is that behavior that is mimicking? So once we identify that, then what we do is what we've always do. We stand up. We do podcasts. We make ourselves available. We get educated. We become AI experts. We learn AI regardless of what field you are. If you're a plumber, you should understand AI. It will impact you. If you're an Uber driver, you should learn about AI. It will impact you, right? Regardless of what field you find yourself in, you need to have a basic understanding of AI because it will touch every industry because of the dollars and value proposition that it provides to folk who are writing checks and make the price of you uh, less. It lowers your price. So you need to be able to understand it. So that's what we need to do as people of color 
to impact the system. Thank you for sharing that because, it, 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 and I begin to see how deep it goes in your response. I'm almost getting this visualization of civil rights within AI, civil rights within technology. And just like, it seems that civil rights may always be a journey that we have to fight for and not rest on our laurels. It seems like this AI or this bias in this decision-making technology is something that we should not rest our laurels. I know when I talk to people about AI, they think it's all about the chat GPT and the language AI, but it's so much more at stake. Yeah, that, that actually frustrates me to be quite honest, because again, I'm with you. Most people somehow equate chat GPT with AI. It's prime example in this whole book, I only had one paragraph or maybe two paragraphs in the whole book on chat GPT and everything else in the book is absolutely true. Nobody is, nobody from corporate America have argued the point, but I didn't even talk about chat GPT in the book. Right. Because when I, in September, October of last year is when I gave the manuscript to the publisher and chat GPT for the normal audience wasn't a thing. It was for me. We knew it, right? In corporate America, we was building these, what we call large language models and generative AI, but it wasn't a thing to the normal person. So when OpenAI came out with ChatGPT, people start saying, hey, that's AI. No, ChatGPT is a type of AI. It's like saying that an app that you have on your phone is a cell phone or mobile device. No, it's just an it's app that runs on your mobile and what ChatGPT does or generative AI, which is really the foundational principle behind it, because ChatGPT is owned by OpenAI, but every other corporate made corporate entity is making billions of dollars on generative AI and not ChatGPT. So that tells you that ChatGPT isn't the main thing. It's not the thing else. Because yes. they don't own ChatGPT. They own they they own large language models. They own generative AI. And what that does, ChatGPT is even more dangerous than some of the things that I talk about because it scales, right? It scales. Think about how ChatGPT was created. OpenAI went to the internet, basically scrubbed the internet for 570 gigabytes of data and pushed it into a model, which is when you hear the word large language model, mm -hmm. it, that's where it comes from. And it's in a unsupervised matter. AI typically comes in two areas. Supervised, meaning that we're labeling the data. Humans are actually looking at the data. Then even though some of these examples that I've talked about are biased, they're, all, they're still labeled data that people are actually looking at. Chat GPT is unsupervised, meaning that people are scrubbing the internet, bringing data. And I say in, in, in my book, can you believe what you hear on the internet? It's like the old State Farm commercial, bonjour. You can't believe what you hear, but ChatGPT and OpenAI have went off and pulled out of this data. So pick your favorite issue that you might hear on the radio or social media where you see where AI has been biased against someone. It scales astronomically with ChatGPT and, and generative AI. Because again, it's all unsupervised yes. concept. It is not the same thing. You need to understand AI. You don't need to understand an app. 
You don't need to understand Jack GPT. No, right. It's to be used as a toy. Mm-hmm. Even Sam Altman says it. Use it as a toy, mm-hmm. not as a business. AI is being used to disenfranchise. It's a business app. That's why they come to large corporations to build it, because they're building business applications and the business systems is what impacts your day-to-day activity, day-to-day life. Wow. Thank you for that example. As we wrap up, I would like to step into the crystal ball or just talk about what's next for you. You've written your first book. You, you've identified the audience. You've chatted with us today to help us understand that it's not just about ChatGPT. ChatGPT is one of millions, maybe even billions one day, of AI models out there that are being used to make decisions about humans, their life, their health. And it could only get worse if we don't begin to step in to some intentional, responsible AI. What are your thoughts? What's next for you? What is your prediction of the future of AI? And tell us what's next for you and where can we follow you? AI is definitely not going to go away. And it's for those reasons we talked about earlier. You think about just over the last three years, in ten, in really in three years, you'll see probably 95% of the applications that you touch today will be formally fueled by some AI algorithm to some extent. Definitely don't count on this going away per se, and it should. I'm a huge fan. I'm a huge fan of AI when done what Calvin said earlier, responsibly. And it can be done responsibly, right? It puts a mirror in front of us, right? That's exactly what it is. And that was one of my friends who, you know, one of my white friends, was in a conference with me and he spoke to a largely white audience and he said, if you're having problems with how AI works and the biases, then change who you are because this system is actually mimicking your tendencies. To your point, it will continue to be a huge part of our everyday lives, not just, it's just no longer a technology. AIs are no longer a technology, it's a business set of business applications uh, that impact our data lives. Uh, for me, I don't know. I don't know what's next for me to be quite honest, but I do know what I won't be doing as I won't be quiet on this topic. I'll always continue to be a voice on this topic, regardless of where I work or what I do. This, this topic is way too important to me and to you to be quiet. Because I think is that would be an issue. It, it, it's you got a house in your neighborhood and somebody is going to build some real cheap houses across the street. Their hope is that you will get tired and quiet and you would stop screaming as loud as you can. And then once you stop screaming, then they will come in and build the houses. Same concept. I think we have to continue to scream as loud as we can, continue to make sure that the people who are building apps, even Folk like myself are doing it intentionally with the victim or the person who might be hurt in mind as we build up. I can be hidden in Whiteside. Whiteside.com is my website for the book. All things can be reached um, by going to that site. You can buy the book. You can you can tweet with me. You can go to my IG page. Uh, uh, you can email me if you got questions, you got comments. 
or you got some recommendations on things that I can do or some things I should be focused on now, feel free to, to go out there. I'm listening. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for continuing to carry the torch. Because as you speak, I begin to realize that the message will continue to be heard. It has to be heard. And people, as you're listening to this replay, you can find the book at hiddenandwhitesite.com by the title, Hidden in White Sight, How AI Empowers and Deepens Systematic Racism. Also, you can find Calvin Lawrence on LinkedIn at the, the hashtag Lawrence Calvin on LinkedIn. We look forward to seeing future books, future opportunities. Thank you for helping us understand something that was once complicated, but now has been broken down so we all can understand it. So we can begin to build awareness and take action to create a better world, not only for technology, but for the world that we live in. Thank you, sir.